0: Oh, so, so uh, my mic has been on the entire time and they've graciously muted my singing. i got the on and off settings wrong here, so thank you. I'll start again. Uh, on a car trip, you will often see a highway sign, scenic view, usually marking a high altitude point from which to see a glorious panorama below. Romans 8 certainly warrants a scenic view sign on any trip through Romans, or indeed through the entire Bible. It begins with a glorious negation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and ends with another glorious negation, nothing can separate us from the love of God. It begins with a declaration of our glorious position in Christ and in the Spirit, which you heard about last week, and ends with an exaltation over that glorious position, which you'll hear about next week. Today's text is part of that scenic view, pronouncing glory at its beginning and ending. But in between, it speaks of groaning. It grapples with the reality that not all is glory on the way to glory. On the way, there is groaning. At the outset, uh, we need to understand glory not merely as a showy effervescence like of a preening peacock or a bright light but as the dignity of rightfully occupying an honored role and being acknowledged as such. Glory is an honor phrase of royalty and a position. Not surprisingly, the Bible uses glory most frequently of God. But in today's text, we will find glory associated with us. Groaning, on the other hand, is not at all like glory. Glory. Uh, Groaning is not dignified, reflects anything but rightness in role or acknowledgement. Groaning is a sound, not a sound that we make in polite company if we can help it. It is a visceral, wordless utterance made when in physical or emotional pain or at the prospect of an intolerable state of affairs. A groan says something is wrong, and wrong in an overwhelming way. It expresses feelings in a way that words simply cannot. There's the groan of pain, which you may have heard, oh, there's sort of the groan over a bad joke, oh, and then there's the, uh, the teenage groan of exasperation, oh, <laughs> the human experience is one of gro- glory and groaning. There's no station or circumstance so low that it cannot exhibit glory, There's no amount of pleasure, attainment, or possession that can exempt someone from the experience of groaning. Every single religious or philosophical worldview, every culture or community, and every individual person must implicitly or explicitly give an account of the simultaneous persistence of glory and groaning. What do we do with it? What does it mean? why do they both persist how can they persist together or at least we need some way of coping with them one of the most common christian ways of coping with the persistence of glory and groaning is romans 8:28 and we know that in all things god works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose you'll see those words in your bulletin today if you wish but out of context That accounting can be inadequately understood. On its own, we might hear verse 28 to mean that whatever groaning happens, it's all going to turn out for glory. While technically true, it can often inappropriately minimize the groaning and inaccurately define the glory promised. Today's text takes us through three groans on the way to glory. Three groans on the way to glory. And those three groans set the stage for a right understanding of verses 28 through 30, which allowed verse 28 to mean what it actually means. So if you'd like to follow on, I'd like to invite you to follow along in the bulletin as we walk through the three groans. Um, And then verse 28 through 30. The first groan is not the groaning of a person, but of creation. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We often groan in pain when the world fails to match up with what we want or need. Here, creation ironically turns the tables on us. The physical world itself groans over the yet unfulfilled state of humanity. The backdrop of this reality comes, comes all the way back from the Jewish view of creation in Genesis 1 where in contrast with dominant religious views, God is not contingent on the attributes of creation, but rather creation contingent on the attributes and actions of God. That's a big statement, but essentially, every view prominent back then was that creation, there was a thing, the way things are, and God appears from the way things are. And that, you can see that reflected some in terms of uh, modern sort of materialistic humanism can sort of look at things that way. In contrast, Genesis comes up with what was a novel view at the time that actually the way things are are there because of God, not the other way. There's not first the way things are and then God. There's first God and then the way things are. And the dependency runs in the other direction. Jewish scholar Nahum Sarna notices that the cleavage between Near Eastern paganism and biblical monotheism is much deeper than arithmetic. In other words, much deeper than one God or more than one God. The the difference was actually bigger than that. It was this reversed contingency. Uh, Genesis makes makes a huge cleavage with paganism in making creation contingent on God rather than the the, the converse. It then builds on that contrast in what it says about human beings, placing us not only on the creation side of that cleavage, which makes sense, but also on the God side. In Genesis 1 and 2, creation is in some ways contingent on the attributes and actions of human beings in some similar way to it being contingent on God. Again, surprising. And when we fall short of glory, when we fall short of our place, when we do not occupy that place at the head of creation in holiness, goodness, wisdom, and the like, we leave the rest of creation longing for that missing state of affairs. That's why I believe that the unidentified one, if you look in the passage, there's a one that subjects the creation to, sub, uh, to frustration, and it's not identified, but I, I would identify that one with God, who in Genesis 3 ordains that the world around us, the very physical creation, necessarily contingent on human persons, will necessarily reflect the brokenness of our rebellion against God. Creation knows it's missing out on what it needs, human beings worthily occupying our rightful place, and so it groans. The second groan in the text is our groaning. Not only so, but we ourselves Who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Human beings who have come to the salvation so gloriously described in the first part of Romans 8, we nevertheless groan. We groan for our adoption to sonship. Now sonship does not refer to the state of being male, actually, but it actually is a way, admittedly a patriarchal way, of referring to the state of being an heir and a ruler. That's what a son was uh, intended to be, an heir and a ruler. As such, it reflects the view of that first groan, the groaning of creation, that humans rightly occupy our rightful place of glory. Uh, Sidebar, by the way, in the ancient world, using the word sonship, functions as a profoundly anti-patriarchal way of referring to all believers regardless of gender, which Paul clearly and explicitly is doing here. Uh, Interestingly, adoption is something that just a few verses prior, Paul says that we already have. So we are groaning to have what we already have. Paul does this sort of thing throughout his writing, describing a benefit of salvation as both already and not yet. We are already adopted as heirs, which uh, Peter preached on uh, recently, um, uh, yet we await the full realization of that adoption. Our future status as heirs is not fully ours, but it is so sure that we can speak as if we already have it. But besides an observation on Pauline's, uh, Paul's in idiosyncratic logic, this groaning is something for something that we supposedly already have, but don't already have, reflects an important part of our Christian experience, one that I imagine many have in this room. Although our awakening to Christ entails unspeakable benefits in this present, in the present time, uh, which I imagine most of you or many of you might be able to attest to those benefits, It yet produces new groans as we long for what is to come. Another way of saying that is being Christian removes some groaning and replaces it with deeper and greater but better groaning. The third and most surprising groan is the groaning of God the Holy Spirit. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Like creation, like we ourselves, the Spirit has an emotional response to the gap between ideal and reality. Pastorally, this brings us a comfort to know that God is not a dispassionate observer of our suffering, but identifies with it in the closest possible way. And when all we have are meaningless, aimless groans, unable to even pray, the Spirit's groans are not meaningless, but purposeful pleas for mercy and relief from God the Father. We might not even know what relief from our groaning would even look like. In that case, God will take over. God will ask God and God will answer. But in addition to the pastoral significance, this truth also contains a prophetic challenge. We don't always know what to pray for. We hurt and we long, but our desires for relief might not be the right ones. In that case, God will take over. God will ask God, and God will answer. This brings us to a proper understanding of the famous words beginning in chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those who justified, he also glorified. God works all things for good. And what is good? What do we in all creation ultimately groan for? What does the spirit groan for and plead for through pandemics and sleepless nights? Human beings' good ultimately involves taking up the vocation of our design as rulers and heirs, a vocation ever rightly fulfilled by one and only one human being Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Conformity with his image is our good and our glory. Our good is here described as a participation in a five-fold chain of God's actions, each deserving of a sermon on its own. Your good is that God foreknew you, saw you personally, intimately, and favorably. Your good is that God predestined you, surely determining your conformity to the image of His Son. Your good is that God called you, communicated with you personally. Some use the word effectually to respond and know the one who already knew you. Your good is that God justified you. As explicated extensively in Romans, God did not first make you right and then treat you as right, but first counts you as already possessing the merits of Jesus Christ as you trust in him. And your good is that having foreknown, predestined, called and justified, God has, is, and will glorify. Note here the switch to past tense again, glorified, uh, which I take in context in a largely anticipatory way. And so we return again to glory, a glory which we now understand to mean nothing more or less than our conformity to Jesus Christ, resembling him, in moral quality, but also his honored vocational status. We gather together today to reaffirm the glory of our faith. But we also affirm that not all is glory on the way to glory. On the way there is groaning. Groaning which honestly reflects the reality of our experience, but more than that, groaning which augments the appreciation of our hope. We turn now in this service to the confession of our faith, the declaration of what we believe. And as we do so, I would invite us to do so so with an awareness of glory and groaning, and particularly in the latter part of that confession as it turns more to our corporate and individual experience. Would you join with me in both declaring the glory of our hope and the acknowledgement that that glory and hope comes with groaning? a groaning of our hearts, which is joined with the groaning of the creation and even of God's uh, self, the Holy Spirit. May our groaning increase our hope, increase our appreciation of that hope. Um, And may our groaning in the end uh, testify to the certainty of what God is doing and will do. Amen.